Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by christianbook.com, a huge selection of Christian books, Bibles, gifts, music, and more, all in one place and always at great values. christianbook.com, everything Christian for less. It's Wednesday, October 31st, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, Ken Sandy joins us to discuss when Christians take each other to court. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm with my co-host, our Editor-in-Chief, Mark Alley. Hey. Good morning, Mark. Well, you're a sports fan. Help my confusion. Up to last Sunday, was it baseball season, football season, or basketball season? And hockey season. Some people would say it's called the greatest time of the year. Oh my gosh, it's the most confusing time of the year. There's nothing that's mutually exclusive to have multiple sports going on at the same time. Let me play the old age card here and say when I was a boy, (laughs) well, baseball and football did overlap a little bit. Yeah. To have the World Series go into late October, that's just wrong. Okay. It's just definitely, it shows the decadence of our country. <laughs> All right, tell us more about Ken Sandy. Ken Sandy is the founder of Peacemaker Ministries and currently president of a new ministry, Relational Wisdom 360. Trained as a mechanical engineer and lawyer, Ken is considered one of the foremost experts on helping Christian institutions and individuals reconcile to one another when conflict threatens to tear them apart. His book, The Peacemaker, has sold over one half million copies. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Mark. Good to be here. Happy Halloween to you, Ken. Do you have any Halloween traditions that you participate in? Well, we've got three grandchildren now, so we look forward to all evening for them coming by. Yes, I can imagine. Well, this is awesome. I'm glad that you're joining us today, and we'll get into our discussion. A Chicagoland megachurch pastor has sued a Christian media personality and two former church members turned potential whistleblowers for defamation. According to Harvest Bible Chapel pastor James McDonald, former Moody radio host Julie Royce and bloggers Ryan Mahoney and Scott Bryant published and helped publicize false and damaging financial information about the congregation that led to the departure of about 2,000 church members. The particulars of this case are something we may discuss in a future show. They're pretty messy. But for this episode of Quick to Listen, we'd like to discuss conflict resolution or lack thereof when it comes to Christians. So, Mark, you know, we're not going to spend too much time talking about the actual particulars of this case, as I just mentioned, but I would like to get your gut check about when you heard this news. My first reaction was, why is one Christian group suing another group of Christians uh, when we have some fairly reputable reconciliation ministries available for them? It was just kind of like, what's going on here? Why why are we doing this when we have other, other avenues at this point? My gut check was a little bit more like, whoa, 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 what's going on? It's not often that you see Christians sue each other. Yeah, after four years working on the news team, I can't say that happens every day. I mean, obviously Christians sue other people, and there's whole Christian attorney teams that file cases all the time. Some of them even make it to the Supreme Court about these particular issues. But Christians taking to each other to court is a little bit more unusual, especially when it's something over, like, church financial ministries and the internet and right, all right. those things that kind of make... I suppose that was part of my reaction, too. It is it is fairly unusual, at least, for it to make the press as it that did in this case. I will say, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, I am interested in the fact that Christians are discouraged from taking each other to court, but maybe not other people. So I hope we talk about why there might be prohibitions against one, but not yeah. necessarily in the other. I'm sure Ken will help us get into that. So, Ken, Mark had mentioned that there are other ways that Christians can resolve disagreements that don't involve using the legal system. Can you give us a sense of what those are? Certainly. You're correct in saying that there's not a lot of uh, high publicity lawsuits out there. They're fortunately fairly rare. And it's usually when you're dealing with Christian celebrities. 
But actually, there are thousands of lawsuits filed between Christians every year. Uh, we, we spend millions of dollars litigating against other Christians in this country. If you ask any attorney, he, you know, attorneys will just tell you they often have Christian businessmen suing other Christian businessmen. And another frequent thing is just Christians suing their church over discipline cases, sexual abuse cases. Those often result in lawsuits. So it's actually a bigger issue that we, we often realize. And there are other avenues. Even in the secular world, arbitration and mediation are increasingly popular just because they're more efficient and often more cost-effective. But the Bible's talked about those very processes, mediation or arbitration, for thousands of years. They're inherent in the Christian faith. Jesus is held up to us as the mediator between sinful man and God. And in 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul specifically addresses the issue of lawsuits between Christians. He had heard that the Christians in Corinth were taking each other to, into the civil courts. And in simple words, Paul was aghast. He said, how can you be doing this? And I mean, he, to him, he's just stunned the Christians would be doing it. So the Bible is very clear that uh, that should be a last resort for Christians to go into civil courts. Sometimes it is legitimate, but with, there's a lot of other options we should exhaust. And about in 1982, the Christian Legal Society here in the U.S. started a ministry called the Christian Conciliation Service. And that's something I got involved in shortly out of law school. And we established a ministry called Peacemaker Ministries, which has been training professional-level mediators, uh, arbitrators uh, around the country, actually around the world, to provide mediation and arbitration conflict coaching to Christians. So that, that option is available, and there's, there's many outstanding conciliation organizations available to Christians today. So you mentioned that there are a huge volume of Christians that are constantly suing each other. As far as you know, has this always been the case where, despite Paul's insistence against acting like this, Christians have still just kind of always turned to legal remedies when they're getting frustrated with each other? No, it hasn't always been the case. Uh, just looking at American history, in the early stages of our history, um, the churches were very clear that they assumed they had primary jurisdiction over lawsuits between Christians. And you could actually be excommunicated from most churches in the early history of the United States if you took another Christian to court. It, it was very, very, um, it was just expected if a Christian had a dispute with another Christian, they would turn to the church. But two things that he wrote of that. One is just the general decline of the influence of the church in our country, and even Supreme Court justices Scalia and, and Berger noted that, that a lot of the flood of lawsuits in this country has to do with the decline of the church. The other thing was uh, law has become more complex. When a commercial law came in and you had all sorts of things about shipping and goods in transit and very complex uniform commercial code came in, churches just felt they weren't competent to do that. So they backed off. So in recent, you know, over the last century, there was a great decline in this, but I'm grateful that since 1982, Christian attorneys are stepping forward again and working with churches to do this. I would assume that part of the issue in America is if uh, your church mistreats you or wants to discipline you in some way in America, it's very simple to just get up and go to another church and just drop the whole matter. The free market context in which we do church nowadays probably contributes to it as well. Very much. People's attitude of, of their relationship with the church, their respect for the church. It's interesting, if you do some research, there's a, there's a man who did some extensive research on lawsuits or churches being sued. Prior to the Civil War, the most common lawsuit was someone suing to get back into a church he'd been disciplined out of. And, and it was so important to be in a church. And you know, if your granddaddy and parents were in that church and you got excommunicated, People would actually go to court trying to force the church to let them back in. And that has completely ended now. If a church excommunicates somebody, the only lawsuit they can expect is to be sued for defamation and infliction of emotional distress. And would you say that's often why people are suing their churches are for those two reasons? Yeah. It, it, when it comes to discipline, that's usually the cause of action is uh, infliction of emotional distress, breach of confidentiality, things like that. But the more common lawsuits, I mean, number one, a huge number of lawsuits involving divorce, where Christian couples are getting divorced and they end up going to civil courts to, to deal with all the legal issues. That would be probably the most frequent uh, suit involving Christians. Another one would be just Christian businessmen doing business and having a, some kind of a contract dispute. And they, instead of resolving it uh, through the church, they, they go to court. 
Sexual misconduct in the church is another source of quite a bit of litigation. Of course, that's usually high profile. Um, and then you have cases like the one you referred to, where there's been some kind of a disagreement between major Christian celebrities dealing with publicity, public relations, things like that. Those don't happen a lot, as far as I know, but when they do, they catch a lot of media attention. So when you mentioned in the 1980s that you joined this team that was trying to look for remedies, again, for these disagreements that were outside the legal system, how did you first kind of get the attention of the folks that you guys wanted to work with? Well, our main target, Morgan, was church leaders. We, we really feel that God has given the church a significant jurisdiction over issues like these in Christians' lives, because typically conflict between Christians involves some allegation of sin. Uh, lawyers can dress that up in legal terms and statutory terms, everything else, but when it, when it really comes down to 99% of the cases I've dealt with, the real issue is a sin issue. Keeping one's word, slandering, false representation, uh, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, those, those are all spiritual issues that the church has jurisdiction over and a judge can't touch. Uh, he can force performance of a contract or, you know, apply damages, but he can't deal with bitterness and unforgiveness, jealousy, all those things. That's why the church does need to be involved, because those are the real issues. And that's the thing we go after in Christian conciliation. We certainly want to resolve any of the presenting issues, whether it's defamation, slander, breach of contract. But we know that the underlying issue, the root, is typically something in the heart. In fact, James 4.1 specifically says that. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, your passions that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You quarrel and fight. You kill and covet. So it, it's the heart that is the real issue. And that's the great thing about the conciliation process is that by God's grace, we try to help people realize what's really going on deep down here. And if we can resolve those issues, in many cases, the parties are able to come to an agreement on the substantive issues that they first came to us with. I'm sure people have some sort of biases in favor of using the legal system versus going an alternative route. So what type of misconceptions do you have to challenge, I guess, for Christians to be persuaded to use these alternative services? Well, that is often the biggest challenge. I, I've always said it, it often takes more work getting people to the table than it does to actually resolve the conflict once we get them to a mediation table. And there's several obstacles overcome. Number one, many Christians simply aren't aware that there are professional quality conciliation services available to them. Um, secondly, a lot of churches don't teach on this. They skip over 1 Corinthians 6. They treat it as antiquated or irrelevant. So many Christians don't hear this teaching in their own church. Third, Many attorneys, even some Christian attorneys, are unfamiliar with a Christian conciliation process. They don't know exactly what to expect, and they're more familiar with the courtroom. And, you know, they're warriors, and they, they want to be on a, a playing field that they are experienced in and have some confidence they can, they can win at. So many attorneys would just prefer to be in that. And then finally, you just have the whole issue of people would rather deal with interpreting a contract and you know determining how many thousands of dollars is owed than they would dealing with the fact that they're struggling with bitterness, resentment, jealousy, unforgiveness. They, they don't want to go there because that's, that's too embarrassing. All right. So I feel like our audience at this point is probably wondering, what do you do? Maybe you can give us two or three examples of what you guys do and how your philosophy plays out, ways that you're mediating things. We always try to look at a conflict in at least two or three dimensions. There's, there's substantive issues. You know, was a contract broken? Was, did someone slander someone else? Those are, those are substantive issues. Secondly, there are personal issues. You know, my, my feelings are hurt. How could you, as my longtime friend, have done this to me? And there's accusations. You know, how could you say those things to other people about me? So there's a personal dimension as well. And then there's a spiritual dimension um, what's going on? Where is God in this? What is he trying to do? And this is what I learned as an engineer. Engineers take problems, a big pile of problems. They sort it into separate piles that are distinct, substantive issues, personal issues, spiritual issues, and then there might be financial issues. And then we bring the proper biblical principles to bear on each of those areas of the conflict. And that's what's so radically different about this. We can move into areas, matters of the heart, matters of the relationship, that you can't go near in a courtroom. That can result in a far, far better solution. We use um, homework in our mediation process where when we first assess the situation, we'll do some pre-counseling with the parties. Uh, there's a workbook we've got that people can work through. 
and basically to help them live out Jesus' command in, in Matthew 7, before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye, get the log out of your eye. And we put a high emphasis on people taking responsibility for their contribution to the conflict. And again, that's quite radical in the adversarial system. You hire an attorney to magnify the other person's wrong and to minimize your wrong. And you pay thousands of dollars for that service, which actually is not a service <laughs> because someone trying to help you think that your sin isn't so bad would be like a doctor saying, well, that tumor in your lung is really not all that bad. It's just a little bit of cancer. A good doctor says it's a little speck today, but it's going to kill you someday if you don't do something about it. And that's what mediation does. It helps people see this little thing that you think is so insignificant, the bitterness, the resentment, not keeping your word. You think it's a little sin. Sin is so serious, it will destroy you. That's what we want to help people do. And once they come to grips with that and the Holy Spirit begins to work in them, and they come to really authentic um, repentance and confession, one of my greatest thrills, frankly, is seeing the parties then almost reverse themselves on the substantive issues. I've seen parties start arguing where the person who was demanding a certain amount of money changes his view and is just saying, well, I'd be happy with half as much. And the other person says, no, no, really, I hurt you more than that. I should give you twice as much. And it's a complete reverse in their conflict. <laughs> and the attorneys are sitting there with this incredibly puzzled look on their face saying, what has happened here? And that's a delightful thing to see. For someone to enter into this process, they have to have a fair amount of humility, willingness to be teachable right off the bat. That's very helpful, Mark, if they do. I, but I have to say many of our clients don't walk through the door, <laughs> door like that. Uh -huh. I would say most clients walk, or many clients walk through the door self-righteous, proud, uh, wanting to be vindicated, convinced the other person is, is wrong. They're, they're doubtful that we are going to be firm enough on the other guy that he's going to, they think, well, he's, that other party is so manipulative and evil, he'll deceive the mediators. And so they're very apprehensive about that. So they usually walk through the door with all sorts of misconceptions and spiritual um, blindness. But that's the beauty of the process. We open up the Bible, we spend time in prayer, we get people into God's Word between meetings, we have private caucuses where we'll talk to individuals about what we see in their own hearts, what they're saying. And to see the transformation from self-righteous, um, self-justifying people at the beginning of the process to humble, godly, forgiving, gracious, gentle people at the end, it is a thrill. Ken, how long do you let this process play out for? Sometimes it takes more time to get people to the table. I, one case, a big, uh, it was a $200 million clergy malpractice case, took us a full year to negotiate how to get them to the table. But other cases, usually within two or three weeks, we can work through their, their, their questions, their concerns, and then schedule the meeting with conciliators. Once we get into the process, it depends an awful lot on the nature of the conflict and the teachability of the parties. Some can be resolved, and I've had some, a two-hour meeting, and people walked out of the door arm in arm. Others would go on for two or three months as we work through the issues. I, I would say most cases take about two to four weeks to get into conciliation and probably on average about a month to fully resolve. But that is a fraction of the time litigation takes. Uh, just get, get a trial date. It can be often a year or two, and then you've got appeals. You can spend five years before you get a final resolution. And that's why many secular corporations are going to mediation arbitration. They just can't afford to be tied up in something for five years. When the process doesn't work, why doesn't it work? A mediator will fail to do a really good job. And over the years, we, you know, we developed a standard of conduct, code of ethics that we held our conciliators responsible to. Uh, I've never seen any deliberate uh, wrongdoing, but sometimes they, they just blew it. I've had cases where I made significant mistakes on accidentally divulging some confidential information, things like that, where I had to meet with the parties and ask for their forgiveness. Mm. Um, so sometimes it's a mediator, mediator weakness. But I would say the vast majority of time, if it doesn't work, one or more of the parties is just so hard-hearted. They, they will not take any responsibility for their contribution, and they just want to do everything they can to cause the other person harm. In those cases, you know, we, we can work away at that for a few meetings, but eventually we've just had to say, you know, until there's a heart change here, we really can't be of help. On the personal side, if they've signed a mediation arbitration agreement coming in, that means if we can't solve it through a voluntary agreement mediation, we move automatically to legally binding arbitration. And then we, we just look at the facts. We look at the contracts. We look at the evidence. 
what the biblical law, the civil law is, and come up with a final binding decision. And so we, we can reach a final conclusion in those cases, even if there's not a personal reconciliation. Maybe you could tell our listeners one or two examples where you just feel so clearly that you saw God at work. One example, it was, it was this, I mentioned it was a $200 million clergy malpractice case where a pastor was counseling a, a couple on marital problems. And the solution they came up with was that they should adopt out their newest baby to the pastor's daughter and son-in-law. What? And <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what the solution was. And it turned into this multi-million dollar lawsuit against the church, the denomination, everything else for breach of fiduciary responsibility and all sorts of things. They were in litigation for four years. There was an attempt to kidnap the child. It was just that it, it could have made an incredibly powerful movie. But we finally, after a year of negotiation, got it into mediation, met with the parties. The first three days were excruciating, just the pain of everybody going on, the, the fear the adoptive parents had of losing a child they'd raised from infancy. And now it was four years old, and they're terrified to lose a child. The church was facing multi-million dollar damages, all sorts of things. And just to make a long story short, there was such a dramatic solution to that of people people out confessing each other, the pastor confessing his sin, the birth father confessing his failure as a father and a husband, the denominational leaders confessing their failure to follow biblical principles. They were falling all over each other to the point that some of the, un, the non-Christian attorneys were sitting there crying. They were so overwhelmed by it and reached a complete substantive agreement on it about restoring the relationship, about financial damages, about bringing change and training into that denomination. So it was probably as dramatic a case. We've seen uh, very dramatic results between businessmen um, working, working through disputes, as I mentioned, where they really start to take, you know, take a hard look at their own conduct, their own attitudes. And even if maybe technically they're in the right, they see that they've been driven by bitterness and revenge and pride. And to see them confessing that, uh, extending mercy to the other side, uh, is just, again, something that non-Christian— I, I love having non-Christian attorneys in these processes because it's a powerful opportunity to see the Holy Spirit at work. And then another kind of dramatic case is sexual misconduct in the church, uh, sexual abuse of children, seduction, uh, typically of women. Um, those are what we call our nightmare cases. They, they're excruciatingly painful, but we've seen amazing results where people— basically follow the biblical example. There's, there's a blog on our website called The Better Way to Handle Abuse and just talks about how can you handle a, an allegation of sexual abuse of a child in a church in a way that ends up glorifying God, um, transforming people, making doing justice. You can accomplish those things. The church can do that. The civil courts can't. They, they can penalize people. They can get damages, but they can't change people's hearts. That blog post on um, the abuse case just illustrates one of the cases that had an incredibly dramatic ending with the abuser confessing fully to his sin, accepting his prison sentence, uh, the church reaching out to his family, holding on to them. They, they were so embarrassed and ashamed. Of course, they wanted to run away and hide in a hole. The church held on to them, kept loving them, and they reached out to the people who had been affected by this. There was no allegation, no threat of a lawsuit. There was total restoration, total redemption, even in the face of a terrible, heinous sin. I would assume that a key moment in each of these, these two examples, as well as the more successful examples, is when one side is willing to fess up and acknowledge a wrongdoing or sinfulness. That, I mean, I've just seen that in just everyday conversations when people are having a dispute. As soon as someone's willing to say, okay... I know I'm at fault here, too. Uh, that tends to all of a sudden lower barriers in very dramatic ways. Well, that's, that's the case even with me and my wife. <laughs> well, exactly. It's every, every conflict. And that's why Jesus, I mean, he is so wise. He, he knows how we are made. And his teaching of getting the log out of your own eye, taking responsibility for your sin, it's vital. And we don't do it easily. In our pride and self-righteousness, we resist it. And yet, when we humble ourselves and do it, the results are amazing. But, you know, we as mediators will often do all we can to help people see things more clearly about their own sin and see the other side in a, in a less hostile way. But mostly it is the work of the Holy Spirit. Who I've had clients who left one mediation meeting just as hard as stone, and I gave them some specific scriptures to, to read and meditate on. And when they walked through the door of my office the next day, you could see from the expression on their face something profound had happened. 
And that is the power of the Holy Scripture when it is being moved and applied by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ken, I'm really struck by the examples that we're talking about with confession as well, as Mark was saying, and also just by, it seems like, the rarity of spaces that we have to really confess to the person that we've wronged, especially given the fact that in these situations, there are other people there that are kind of maybe facilitating the conversation and looking after those best interests because sometimes it can be extremely nerve-wracking, I guess, and almost a little bit dangerous to some extent to confess when there's not necessarily other people there. Um, But it does really seem like a, a very unique space that you guys end up creating. It is a delicate, unique thing. I mean, just for one example, there's many conflicts where people are representing a larger group. Good example would be labor management negotiations. And they they often get bogged down by what we call the constituency issue. You're more concerned about how you look in the eyes of your constituency Mm -hmm. than you are how you look in the eyes of God. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, what I will often do is I'll try to get those parties just one-on-one away from their constituency. You know, as an aside, Ronald Reagan was a master of this when they're doing a lot of the nuclear disarmament talks. When they're in a room with, four, you know, the two leaders, Gorbachev and Reagan, and 40, you know, supporters, they, they made no progress. Reagan said, let's take a break, walked down by the lake. He prearranged a little cabin or guest house down there with a fire and some refreshments. And he and the Gorbachev and the two uh, interpreters went in there. That's where they made progress. And so just understanding human nature is crucial in creating a safe environment. And and the big part there, Morgan, for me, the thing that creates a safe environment where people can finally open up and confess sin is when they really be, become more aware of the, of the significance of the gospel. Our sins have been forgiven by God. They have been washed away. They've been fully paid. Now, there can be worldly consequences, worldly things we need to do to make up for wrongs, But when people really come to understand the power of the gospel, the significance of the gospel, the freedom and forgiveness we have in Christ, and what he had to do to purchase that for us, that's where we see the big breakthroughs, is when people get their focus back on God instead of just being focused on their own self-righteousness or the other person's wrongdoing. You'll even see examples in the Bible where this is a pattern the Scriptures teach, is that when people are in conflict, they tend to be very horizontal. It's me against you. And to get the focus back on the Lord, you know, referring back to that Philippians passage, Philippians 4, when Paul is giving advice to the two women who are in conflict and to the others who he's hoping will help them, the first step he gives, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Get your focus back on God. Remember what he's done for you in Christ. Remember how much he's forgiven to you. You know, even we we often go to the parable of the unmerciful servant, 10,000 talents of debt forgiven. And you won't forgive, you know, a hundred denarii. And that's the attitude a lot of people have in conflict. They they forget how much God has forgiven them and they look at the other person's sins as being just infinite. So getting into the word, praying for the Holy Spirit's involvement, those those are all crucial parts of it. We're talking right now about Christians suing each other, but I've also noticed, as I'm sure you have, Ken, that restorative justice has become a point of conversation within criminal law. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. There are, there are some marvelous ministries out there, uh, frankly, both secular and Christian. There, there's many that just see the, the inherent value of trying to work through some kind of a repentance and reconciliation process. The, the most dramatic one of that, of course, would be the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa that for the first time stopped the revenge cycle when uh, the Afrikaner government was, was removed. Um, but in the U.S., there's some wonderful ministries also of, of going into prisons meeting with people who've been convicted of terrible crimes, including murder, and actually working with the victim's families to bring about a confession and reconciliation process. And even by common grace, those processes, I think, can do significant good. Um, But I think the ones that do the most good are the ones that are gospel-based. Because of that focus that you said right there of them being gospel-based, is there any way to kind of scale this model at all to people who are not Christians? Oh, definitely. Definitely. There's examples in the Bible of people of faith uh, making peace with people who are not trusting in the living God. And and in fact, many of the people we interact with every day are non-Christians, and we have many opportunities. Along those lines, Morgan, we just actually put out an app, a smartphone app, 
that has both the a, a biblically explicit peacemaking system and a what we call a values-based or a secular system. And it's specifically designed that Christians can share that app. If, if you've got a coworker, for example, that's having a hard time getting along with the boss or his marriage is in trouble, uh, you could go out, have lunch, listen to the situation, show authentic empathy and compassion, and then just say, could I show you some simple principles that help me? And you could bring up the faith or the values base, the secular version initially, if you're not sure about the other person's uh, faith condition, and just walk through some of the basic, what I would call common grace peacemaking principles that work. I've, I've used them with non-Christians. But then at some point, in many cases, you can say, well, could I assure you just a, a little bit different version of this that is the one I use? And then you flip over to the one that is gospel-based, explicitly concerned with, with where we are with God and what he's up to. And it's, it's actually a very powerful witnessing tool. Everybody has conflict. Everybody every day you know, we'll have some measure of disappointment, at least with other people, if not outright conflict. So for Christians to be living up to their calling uh, as peacemakers, it would fulfill Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called, they'll be recognized as, they'll be seen to be the children of God. Yeah, so I'm going to recommend that Morgan put that on her app, because she does have to work with me. And I'm sure there will be times (laughs) when she'll need to use it. I'll just whip out my phone in the middle of the conversation. Exactly. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is sponsored in part by Men Unplugged, a Christ-centered talk show. Its hosts, Jeff Jarena and well-known Christian leaders, offer practical solutions for the issues facing men and their families today. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? Great, Morgan. Thanks for having me on the show today. I really do appreciate it. How did you become passionate about serving and reaching and ministering to men? From 26 to 30 years old, I was severely depressed. I mean, almost every other day I had suicide thoughts. And somebody shared the gospel with me. And I placed my faith in Christ, and it was 180 degrees running to Jesus instead of running away. And he said, okay, now what I want you to do is go tell other men all the lies that you've been believing from Satan. At the time, I didn't want to be around anybody. I was ashamed of myself. I just didn't feel like God loved me. I didn't feel like, you know, I was worthy of love. And I just started telling these men how Christ radically changed my life. And these men, they just started to get hope. You know, they're like, man, if God can do that for you, He can do the same thing for me. This is what we want to do. We want to interview top Christian leaders every single week, well-known individuals like Josh McDowell, Dennis Rainey, Gary Thomas, Steve Arterburn, professional athletes, business leaders, guys like Mercy Me, all these different guys, provide these resources to help men and their families out, to help them ignite their faith in Christ, to strengthen their family. So that's how Men Unplugged came about. For more information, go to menunplugged.net. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. I've worked with Christian ministries before that I, I think were very sincere Christians, uh, had done a lot of good work, got sideways with each other. And one of the things that kept them from getting into a conciliation process, one or both sides set up conditions. You know, I'll do this Christian process if X, Y, and Z. And and they basically put up such unreasonable conditions on the other party as a way to actually avoid coming into a biblically grounded process. So that's something I always want to encourage people to be careful. Don't try to avoid doing the biblical thing by coming up with unrealistic or, or just, you know, unfair conditions to impose on the other person to, to make it impossible to do the process. Well, especially if it seems like you're bargaining with God. God, I'll do what <laughs> you yeah. told me to do. Absolutely. If, if this Absolutely. other person does it too. <laughs> One humorous story just uh, some years ago here in Billings, there was a, a judge, his name was Judge Ludke. I, I knew him. My father was a district judge as well. In fact, my dad came to Christ because of what he saw God doing through the conciliation cases I was working on. 
But wow. this other judge had a reputation of being a pretty stern judge. And one day he had uh, two, two people, businessmen, suing him. And uh, as one was on the stand and they're talking, how did you meet the other person? And he mentioned, well, we were in a Sunday school class together. And at that point, the judge, who's not a Christian, interrupted and said, uh, will counsel please approach the bench? And both the attorneys came up, both of whom were Christians. And the judge said, do I understand that your two clients met each other in a Sunday school class? I said, yes, Your Honor. That, that means that they're both Christians, correct? Yes. Doesn't your Bible say that they should be resolving this in their church rather than in my courtroom? And the attorneys later told me, they were friends of mine, they, they just felt like crawling under the table. Here's a non-Christian judge who was pointing them to the Bible in a way that they were not being faithful to. And that case came into conciliation, was resolved. <laughs> that is funny. That is very funny. You know, one thing that I'm thinking about, Ken, over this course of this conversation is that when it comes to mediation and restorative justice equally, they both ask people on both sides to lean further into the relationship as opposed to distancing themselves. And they ask for more vulnerability and transparency and confession and openness to seeing that happen. It, it does seem that in many ways our legal system is set up in such a way as to help people avoid doing all of those things. Is there a way to kind of bring some of those elements back into our criminal justice system? Or is do you imagine this just being something that kind of exists alongside or parallel to it? Well, I'm not a criminal attorney. I've advised some Christians who had some criminal charges against them. And I, I would just say this, and this is also based on things my, my own father said as a trial judge for over 20 years. He said that he could count on his one hand the times he saw a defendant, a criminal defendant in his court, who, who was seen to be authentically repentant. Uh, they will often fake it, but it, it's pretty hard. I mean, a good judge will see right through it. But he said that when he saw a defendant who was authentically repentant, his inclination as a judge was to lessen the sentence because part of the whole thing of punitive sentences is to bring people to repentance. And the, in fact, the other thing is, I've advised people in trials to say, listen, be honest. If you get up on that stand and try to present yourself as 100% perfect at making no errors, you're going to kill your credibility because the jury's going to know nobody's perfect. And I found, and my dad said the same thing, is when people get up and are humble and transparent and honest uh, about, yeah, here's the things I did to contribute, and this is where I know I need to take responsibility, and here's what I think the other side did, th there's a huge credibility factor there that, that takes place. The other thing that is a concern to me is I, I wrote an article sometime called uh, The Dangers of Good Advocacy. And one of the downsides of the adversarial system, it, it has some benefits in a fallen world. I think it's probably still the best system. But the downside of adversarial system is when you hire an attorney to magnify your righteousness and magnify the other side's unrighteousness, th that attorney actually ends up distorting his client's view of reality. Because someone might come in, realize he'd done, yeah, I, I shouldn't have done this, or I, yeah, I did breach the contract there. But if you hear your attorney spend months justifying what you did, you start to believe it. And the sad thing is, many people walk out of a secular legal process more convinced of their righteousness. Even if they lost the case, they're, they're still convinced they're right. So I think there are ways, and I work with Christian attorneys. We do uh, continuing legal education uh, training for attorneys around the country on, you know, how can you be a good advocate in the model of our advocate, Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't distort reality. He speaks truth. He deals with justice. So we, we can model ourselves after that, deal with truth. And really good attorneys, one of their marks is they, they usually help clients settle disputes short of an actual trial. Because by the time you get to a trial, it's, it's just everybody is so polarized. Uh, help me understand how your uh, reconciliation philosophy works in the case of, uh, let's say, some of the Me Too situations that have arisen where a pastor, and let's stick with inside the church for now, a pastor uh, takes advantage of uh, a woman in an inappropriate way sexually. One of the principles seems to be each party needs to come being willing to uh, confess their contribution to the problem. But in many of those instances, we we deny that the woman has any responsibility for the problem or the abuse has been so, so horrific that there really isn't anything for the yeah. victim to confess. Uh, how, how do you deal with that? And then in some cases, I would add people counsel that woman and that pastor should never 
talk to each other again. They shouldn't have a relationship anymore. Those are some right. of the complicating factors. How do you yeah. negotiate them? those? Are those are really explosive cases, all by themselves. They're they're delicate, explosive cases because they deal with such uh, vulnerable and sensitive emotional and spiritual issues. So standing alone, they're delicate. Add to it the cultural pressure and expectations we have right now, and you you've got incredibly challenged. I'm I'm advising three churches right now on how to deal with that. The other issue that comes up, uh, you didn't mention, Mark, but is this whole presumption of guilt. Traditionally, we assume someone is innocent until proven guilty. And now there's talk of reversing that, that we are to assume that the accused is guilty until he proves he's innocent, um, which is incredibly difficult to do. So I, I think the biblical principles do apply. They're very delicate. You know, you've got another issue that comes up theologically. Some churches use the the verse in Timothy that, you know, don't entertain an accusation against an elder except on the testimony of two witnesses. And in many cases, it was just the the pastor and a woman alone in a room. So there's not another set of eyeballs who can actually say, I saw it. And many churches will dismiss these cases out of hand. Uh, I think that's an improper reading of that scripture. I think what it's basically saying is if you've got two people and no other corroborating evidence— that then our assumption culturally, because of our Judeo-Christian roots, is that we we will find someone innocent unless proven guilty. But there can be other corroborating evidence. If there's two or three women that you know accuse someone of this on separate in, you know, occasions, and you still have to assess the credibility of those people. If there's physical evidence of this going on, that that would constitute the second witness as well. But when you do deal with these, the you know these are incredibly delicate. The the you know I've done child sexual abuse cases. Uh, people twenty thirty years later coming forward with accusations, and I still believe these cases can be handled better within the church if you've got some skilled, godly, spiritually mature people handling it. Um, there's a lot of well-intended church leaders that try to deal with these things, but they are often very clumsy. And they can actually do more harm. That's not their intention. They, they're trying to do the right thing, but they, they can be very clumsy. One of the things we just began was we call a conciliation hotline, where church leaders that are trying to deal with conflicts like these can actually contact us and uh, get a, an hour of free advice on how do you begin to process this thing? How do you talk to the parties? Do they communicate with each other? all those issues. And there's a, a very detailed booklet we've got on our website called Leading Christians Through Conflict, and it has this hotline in it. Because we, we really do believe the vast majority of conflicts between Christians can and should be handled in the local church, but we recognize that the majority of Christian leaders have not had specific training on how to provide conflict coaching, mediation, or arbitration. So we'll try to make sure that number gets put on our website when the show goes up. That sounds like a great resource. Ken, I'm wondering if you could just share some of those best practices around do's and don'ts, you know, just common mistakes that you see churches make or common best practices that you wish more people adopted. Yeah, there's a there's an article on our website you might also link to. It's called Accountability for Christian Leaders. I've seen the church err in two directions. We, we either under-protect leaders where they, they're subject to every accusation and attack and slander, and they're just spending all their time dealing with criticism. It just wears them down, wears their life down, they finally give up. The other one is we over-protect Christian leaders. Someone comes forward with an allegation, maybe some improper conduct in a counseling session. Maybe it's short of sexual harassment, but it's, it's just getting too emotionally intimate with somebody. And we ignore that. We circle the wagons. We protect the leader. When in fact, if we'd intervened early, we could nip a problem in the bud. And if you overprotect a leader, it's just a matter of time before things would get so bad, it'll explode. So I think we need to have proper accountability, proper guidelines. I mean, things as simple as not counseling a woman alone. Uh, it's just, it's a vulnerable situation. I, I never did that. Just always have another woman there or, or something else like that. So there's common sense things. Another principle is simply churches should be teaching on these principles before the conflict arises. Um, trying to teach peacemaking when you've already got a major dispute is like trying to teach someone to fly a plane right after the pilot had a heart attack and you're trying to sit in the seat. It's, it's really too late. So being proactive 
teaching these relational skills, and that's what our new ministry, Relational Wisdom 360, is about. How do you teach Christians relational skills that can actually prevent most of these conflicts in the first place? Well, thank you so much, Ken, for speaking with us about this. Thank you for giving us some insight into how your ministry works and how it functions and all those great examples as well. For people who have feedback or opinions about the stuff that we talked about today, you can always send us email. We're at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. You can find us there. All right, before we move on, I just want to take this time to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who supports Christianity Today, our ministry here, which most of you know is our magazine, but also is a ministry that does a lot of different things, and also most of you know too. But just a reminder, Mark is our editor-in-chief, and so he has all these different roles that he performs as part of that. Mark, do you have things that like help you do your job better as editor-in-chief? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, no, most of the time I can't use them as work time. <laughs> but reading is a really important part of most editors' job, but especially editor-in-chief. And it's not just nonfiction uh, analysis, theological analysis, or social analysis. I do try to keep my head in a novel uh, all the time. Uh, I'm currently reading uh, a classic by Evelyn Waugh called Bride's Head Revisited, The Sacred and Profane Memories of Captain Charles Ryder, which is a classic. It uh, pictures essentially aristocratic life in England from the 1920s to the 1940s. It's filled with a lot of Catholic sensibility. And I think uh, just a simple line from a a recent scene that I read, so I'm still in the middle of it, uh, one of the Catholic matriarchs is talking, I believe it's about her son, and she says that she's worried that he doesn't have enough Catholic friends. They're very devout Catholics, this family. He doesn't have enough Catholic friends at, at the university, and he wish he had more. But then she also says, God forbid that he would only have Catholic friends, which uh, struck me as a really interesting phrase, that kind of openness to the fact that a, even a devout, very, very devout Christian would not want to only have very, very devout, righteous Christian friends, but that it's important for their humanity, for their ministry as disciples of Jesus Christ, that they have lots of different friends. So um, that, that quote's going to come up in something I write. But it's one of the reasons I read novels, yeah, to get a flavor of other times and periods and people and places. And I think that's very important. That's awesome. All right. So if you would like to support Christianity Today, the ministry, you can do that by going to morect.com slash podcasts. That's morect.com slash podcasts. Again, we're super appreciative for everyone who gives the ministry. So thank you for doing that. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Ready, set, go to you, Mark. Okay, I will not uh, steal our guest thunder about grandchildren, but I have one, but I will hold it in reserve for another time. Actually, something that brought me joy, my wife and I joy, we've just cleaned out our dining room living room, and kitchen area, which is all connected by a hardwood floor because we're going to have those floors refinished. So we had to take everything out of those rooms. And there's something really pleasing about sitting down in a lone chair in a completely empty space that used to be completely crowded with stuff. You're like, will I even put the stuff back Exactly. I don't even want to see it again. (laughs) Did you get rid of some stuff? Not yet. Okay. But I'm hoping we will. We're at that stage of life where it's time to start shedding stuff. and uh, It feels so good. Yeah. Where can people find you outside of this? I publish something called The Galley Report. You can find it at Christianity Today slash The Galley Report. Galley is spelled G-A-L-L-I. All right. You ready to go, Ken? Yes. Um, my joy is that I work at this point in life with my wife, son, and daughter all in our staff. And that means that my three grandchildren are here at our office a few times a week. And there is just, there's few joys in this life that are as great as young grandchildren. I don't get any work done those days, but it's a great, I was going to say, it's a great, great time to just celebrate still having a family that's very close together, working together, loving each other. And that's a gift from God. We're all sinners. We've had to forgive and, and um, repent and change and grow, but we've done it. And I love being with my family. So what do you guys do in Montana with kids for fun? Oh, man, we've got all the outdoors things here, the snow and the hiking and fishing and backpacking, boating. Uh, I I love the outdoor recreation uh, stuff the most. Pardon my ignorance. Are you guys in rodeo country at all? 
Oh, absolutely. We've got great rodeos here. Um, I was I was raised on a ranch, so been bucked off more horses than I can count. So cool. All right. You mentioned a bunch of different things that you want to flag for our listeners. Do you mind sharing a couple of them right now? Yeah, the most the easiest thing is just our smartphone app. You can just go to either Apple or the Google uh, store and just look for RW360, RW360. And that's got hundreds of articles and videos on peacemaking and on Christian conciliation, mediation, arbitration. Another one would be this booklet called Leading uh, Christians Through Conflict. If you go to our website, it's under the free download, in fact, about 10 or 15 free downloads there that people can uh, grab. And then that article, The Accountability, the Mark of a Wise and Protected Leader, dealing with some of these issues that come up today. I think if, if more church leaders follow these things, we'd have less, less of them being sued and, and attacked. We do have an online course. It's an interactive online course. It's our most popular resource right now. Uh, it uses movie clips, demonstration videos, short teaching videos. And we've got thousands of people all around the world learning these peacemaking skills and relational wisdom through that. So that, that'd be a thing I'd really point people to. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. My precious moment is I've been part of this East Asian American group this past fall, and we are currently doing group presentations that have to do with different East Asian communities in their role in Chicagoland. And last night, I was part of the group that looked at Japanese history in Chicagoland. And as part of that activity, we got to do Aikido, which I have never done Aikido before. I think I've only taken one martial arts class in my life before this, but it was interesting. Okay, so that when we have a dispute, I need to keep my distance, in other words. The goal of Aikido is not to hurt people. It's about defending yourself and using positive force as opposed to, they show you all these different ways where if you like just use brute force, you're actually not very successful in Aikido. There's a whole type of like philosophy behind that too. That was so cool. positive, positive force is where she tells you what a great guy you are, how good looking, how great as an editor <laughs> uh-huh, you are. That's exactly <laughs> what I meant by positive force. <laughs> Interesting play on words there. <laughs> All right. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast, you can find it everywhere. So wherever you like to listen to podcasts, you can find it there. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by ChristianBook.com, where you'll find great Christmas gifts for everyone on your list. From books to Bibles and music to videos, toys, and more, Christian Book has everything Christmas for less. This podcast is best listened to in some ways if you're on Apple Podcasts, because there you can rate and review the show, and we appreciate everyone who has done this. Thank you so much to our producers, who are Richard Clark, Cray Allred, and I guess an awkward thank you to myself. Maybe, maybe not. I will thank Morgan publicly for being a producer of the show. Thank you. She does a great job, all kidding aside. (laughs) Appreciate it, Mark. All right. Our theme music is by Sweeps, and we will see you all next week.